ongoing work with Ferdinand Ivo uh, on rents, politics, and development. The presentation really builds on a very old insight in political economy, which is that if you want to look at the political economy of authoritarianism, we'll just run this. So it's an old insight that you need to, if you want to understand the political economy of authoritarianism, you would need to think about the overlap between economic and political power. Because clearly dictators who control the space control several spaces, the civic commons, but also the economic commons. And they control the economy primarily by dividing the market. And they divide the market by erecting a structure of control through policies, regulations, manipulation of the economy. And that creates rents. These rents, in turn, are critical for sustaining elite coalitions, which results in authoritarian resilience over time. Now, that has important implications for the region. It has important implications because it means that you would need to understand the institutional details of the economy and the overlap between economic and political power in order to understand a key question in social science, why is authoritarian resilience so common across much of uh, the Middle East, particularly North Africa? What we do in this presentation is really we build on a series of new data sets that have emerged, and that's largely thanks to the Arab Spring. That has been a major boon from the Arab Spring, that we have now seen more data coming out on who owned which enterprises, how they manipulated different laws and regulations. And we have the Bob Rischker's database, the database of German, Germany Trade and Invest, which includes all the various sectors on which uh, 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 Ben and his cronies had a control of. And we combine that with the WITS database, the World Integrated Trade uh, Services database, on tariff barriers, non-tariff barriers, to demonstrate the, uh, the resilience of the economic structure and therefore also the political resilience. However, before I begin, let me say, uh, emphasize that this is not really to, to sort of exceptionalize Benelli's regime. It's actually a very fairly common feature across most of North African and Middle Eastern economies. Uh, it is indeed true also for Jordan, for Lebanon, also for Morocco, in many different ways. Clearly, the institutional details are different. Uh, so I try to draw out the broader implications of this for the Middle Eastern political economy. And the point that I wish to emphasize is the following, that much of the literature on the Middle East has talked about authoritarianism and its resilience mainly through the lens of the resource curse, that these countries are very rich in natural resources, and therefore uh, they, uh, they use those resources to betray their rule. However, what I argue in a separate paper is that the Middle East suffers not just from a resource curse, it suffers from a rent curse. And when we think about the rent curse, the rent curse consists of rents, which are defined as unearned income streams, from a variety of channels. Oil is one, but its remittances, its aid, call it geostrategic rents, but most importantly, the government manipulation of the economy. And that is indeed where today's presentation is going to largely focus on, because it will emphasize how a state which is largely open, export-oriented, a model for prosperity certainly for the World Bank and the IMF, yet it has remained highly selective in, its, uh, in the ways it implemented its policies, um, and indeed also uh, the way it implemented reform. Now, while Ferdinand tries to sort out uh, the presentation uh, slides, uh, let me just continue ahead and build a narrative around my presentation. 
Now, why is this focus on rents important? This focus on rents is important because you want to explain not just the likes of Kuwait, Qatar, Iraq, who are very rich in oil uh, resources. You want to explain political change or its absence in a number of North African economies, such as Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Jordan. These are all places which are not very high on resource rents per se, but they're very high in terms of the government manipulation of the economy. Indeed, a large number of these economies have uh, uh, suffered from you know, a decline of resource rents. Many of them were resource rich way back in time. However, this fall in resource revenues is actually compensated by the rise in other kinds of rent streams. And one kind of rent stream that I want, wish to emphasize is through economic control, subsidies, licenses, quotas, restrictions. A lot of economic activity takes place mainly because uh, you know, there are restrictions. There's a government authorization in place to start a business in a particular sector. Uh, or there's a restriction uh, uh, in terms of entry into the, the FDI. Ferdinand, I would still like you to try, though, because there are a couple of very interesting... Fine. That's fine. I will, I will continue to... Okay, so what are the other kinds of rents? We call them regulatory rents. Rents are unearned income streams derived from manipulation of the economy. Um, licenses, quotas, contracts, but particularly land acquisition deals, which are also hugely important in much of the Arab world. In fact, it's a great thesis for an MPhil student or a PhD student to study the land market uh, in a large number of these countries. We have very few such case studies. Um, okay. Uh, we also have a range of monopoly concessions. We have price controls, procedural regulations. And these rents are important to understand for another reason, which is that when we t talk about economic reform, we say economic reform in the Middle East was uneven, incomplete, hesitant. But remember, economic reform was selective mainly because it was politically mediated. So trade liberalization was resisted because trade competes with existing rent streams. Services sector liberalization was encouraged because if you want to open a new bank, you need a license. If you want to own a, a share of the telecommunication sector, it creates new rents. So services sector liberalization and liberalization that served the domestic economy was encouraged because it created new rent streams, opening up the possibility for creating new alliances. Whereas trade liberalization was resisted because trade liberalization would have competed with existing rent streams. Truly, the story of the Middle East is one where the economics of concessions, various types of concessions, and here there's a long historical pedigree, starting from the Treaty of Capitulations from the Ottoman Empire and the French colonial rule, and so on and so forth. But that economics of concessions has continued to trump the economics of competition. And here is a plot which I really like, and a lot of my students are actually aware of it because I've emphasized this very much. I think it, this really is a plot that speaks a thousand uh, stories. It basically shows the scale of tariff and non-tariff barriers. The tariff barriers are the gray bars, and the black bars are the non-tariff barriers. Two key insights emerge from this. The first one is that the Middle East North Africa region, in terms of its non-tariff barriers, these are procedural controls, price controls, quotas, everything other than tariffs, um, are extremely high in the region. In fact, they are higher than Sub-Saharan Africa, another one of the most protected regions in the world. More importantly, these non-tariff barriers 
are higher in labor-abundant economies of the Middle East. And there's a very simple explanation for that. If you are in Kuwait or Qatar, you have a lot of rents from natural, natural resources to distribute to various constituencies. If you are a resource-scarce country, on the other hand, relative to your population, you need more rent streams to create and sustain elite coalitions. And that is indeed one reason why, in labor-abundant economies of the MENA uh, region, you have higher levels of non-tariff barriers. Why do we wish to focus on Tunisia? I think it's a surprising story because it's, a, it's one of the most successful exporters of North Africa, yet the domestic economy is still governed by intervention and regulation. So there's a classic dichotomy in North Africa, uh, but particularly in Tunisia, between the onshore sector and the offshore sector. The offshore sector is the export sector. You want to tell stories, good stories of economic reform. You want to uh, derive enough revenues from, that uh, from taxation uh, of that sector. So there is a very different policy regime that governs the offshore sector, which is the export sector. An entirely different regime for the onshore sector, which is the domestic economy. And as a ruler, you need to be able to control the spoils of the domestic economy in order to create the coalition. Um, Tunisia is also interesting because that is indeed where selective and hesitant economic reform uh, uh, was more powerfully manifested. But more importantly, half of Tunisia's GDP is dependent on imports. Therefore, who gets those import licenses is an important uh, uh, part of the story. Also, customs revenues account for roughly a quarter of fiscal revenue. So a lot of the control of the economy really takes place through control of trade policy. And here is the story. Now, if you look at much of the data that has just come out uh, on the ownership structure of Benelli firms, um, you find that actually nearly 220 firms were owned directly by Benelli clan, which consisted of Benelli, his wife, um, and the many nephews, brothers, and, and daughters. Uh, together, they owned 220 firms. And these firms largely operated in the onshore sector, largely in the services sector, right? Uh, finance, real estate, telecommunications, uh, import of cars is a big story. And family members in the second and third circle, however, also control parts of the domestic production and manufacturing sector, particularly in relation to its control of the domestic economy. You see, clearly see a huge manipulation of the trade policy that privileged insiders. Tariff rates were not only high, in fact, they are, Ferdinand and I find that they are higher than, uh, than in um, Egypt, but they're also more variable. And the reliance on non-tariff measures uh, is also higher, particularly for these connected firms. Now, what is the evidence from this firm census data? It suggests that Benali firms, represented by BA, um, account for 1% of private sector jobs, very small, tiny share of jobs, 3% of output, but 21% of net profit. So they tend to cluster around the profitable sectors without really creating jobs for ordinary people. They're largely in the onshore sectors, as I've described, and they're more likely to operate in sectors that require some kind of prior government authorization to operate, and in sectors where, where there are greater restrictions to foreign entry. What is more important is that these firms tended to have influenced the very process through which regulation was implemented, enforced, um, and so I would be presenting a little bit of evidence on that account as well. Now, here is this uh, a combination of the WITS database and this uh, network of political uh, economic cronies. Um, and you look at sectors, so the, the lightly shaded bar 
uh, is where the, uh, there is a lower level of uh, 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 presence of these Benelli cronies, and the darker bar represents greater presence of Benelli cronies. So clearly you could see that sectors where Benelli and cronies were more likely to be present had higher levels of tariff uh, averages. So there were greater restrictions on foreign competition in those sectors. Another important story is widespread tariff evasion by connected firms. So uh, these firms were more likely to falsely declare imports, uh, largely as a way to, uh, to, to re-export. Um, they benefited from extensive privileges through licenses and import quotas. A key story is one of the car sector. The Inaco uh, company, for instance, uh, benefit benefited from huge duty exemptions and created demand by requiring taxi companies, a whole range of other government uh, sectors to actually uh, employ them. The Tunisian investment law is again a fascinating story. During the, the period 1994 to 2010, there were actually 22 decrees that were issued by Benelli family. And these required authorization requirements for 45 sectors and introduced new FTI requirements for 28 sectors. And these were largely sectors where those cronies were likely to be present. So here you see how laws were actually uh, uh, designed really to privilege insiders. This table again, uh, uh, Ferdinand and I prepared uh, using the WITS database, where we looked at the non-tariff measures, and we find um, the Benelli Trebelsi clan presence in the percentage of sectors that were subject to NTM. And there, there's of course variation, but there's certainly a lot of sectors, uh, a lot of different measures that were likely to be applied in sectors where Benelli uh, family had greater presence. For instance, you know, the selective import controls nearly 100% uh, presence in those sectors. Uh, so clearly, non-tariff measures, which again is a great stuff uh, for an MPhil thesis to try to understand what exactly are those non-tariff measures and how do they benefit uh, uh, particular incumbents. Now, let me then develop based on this evidence very quickly because I realize we are really short of time. What are the broader implications for better political economy? And here I wish to emphasize the need for a move from an emphasis on resource curse to rent curse. It's arguably more powerful rent curse that is defined by the confluence of various rent streams that I mentioned at the beginning of my lecture today. It also requires a better understanding of the patronage systems that actually restrict market access. You know, all of these measures, not only uh, privileged firms that are not creating jobs, they're actually blocking the way from medium-sized firms. Today, a key complaint in the MENA economies is one of missing middle, that there are very few medium-sized firms. Well, one reason medium-sized firms do not thrive or survive in this environment it is because they, are, uh, they face systematic market exclusion because of these cronies. Um, we need a better understanding of the rentier structure uh, and the overlap between economic and political power. More importantly, it suggests that the business-state relationship holds the key to understanding MENA political economy, particularly in North Africa. And when we think about the business-state relationship, there is a surprising uh, disjunction between uh, the, the cronies at the top and the informal sector. You know, the cronyism and informality are two ends of the same spectrum. Business in much of North Africa survives either when it is too close to the state or too far from the state. But much of business-state relationship has looked at state in a monolithic way. The state, when it interacts with the large business, is very different from the state uh, for the medium and the small and the informal sector. And one needs to conceptualize state differently 
according to the different sectors we are talking about. For the informal sector, for instance, it means petty bureaucrats. And a key question, in, uh, still an open question, I think, is who controls vital access points to the economy? You've talked about Benelli, but in a large number of North African countries, the military security sector controls, uh, and that is certainly the case in Algeria and many other countries, they control key parts of the economy, and that includes interior ministry, civil and military bureaucracy, smuggling uh, rackets on the border, uh, and that still needs to be mapped. Now, there, of course, there are many, many examples in other countries. You have the investment law number 10 that Bassam Hattar talked about in Syria, the query regulation and the oil import cartel in Lebanon. You have the regulatory regime that governs the land market in Morocco. And all across the MENA region, you really have a disjunction between what uh, economists are now calling between the de jure and the de facto regime. Right? There's a huge distinction between the two. Let me end by drawing two big implications amongst many uh, uh, for the study of Middle East political economy. The primacy of rents and rent seekers in this framework suggests that technocratic economic reform of the kind emphasized by the IMF and the World Bank is unlikely to work in the absence of a broader political settlement that compensates rent-seeking intermediaries. You really have to identify them, bring them on board uh, in terms of uh, your uh, reform calculus. Second, is that simply replacing the top rulers is unlikely to change the political equilibrium. In a, in a sense, that's the easier part. The more difficult part is that that rent-seeking coalition tends to survive. It's more resilient. And it's far more difficult to actually dislodge that uh, rent-seeking uh, uh, coalition. And for that, you really need to change the basic incentive structure of the economy. Now, you can, of course, create laws to ban crony capitalists. That may not do the job. I mean, you had crony capitalists in Indonesia. You had crony capitalists in a large number of East Asian countries. The problem uh, there was less severe in the sense that it was more open, it's more competitive, integrated with the global economy, and ultimately opened access for the wider economy. Ultimately, you need a stronger, small, medium enterprise sector so that they can ch continue to challenge the big guys. Uh, and I think that's a story that still remains to be explored in a proper way. Um, and I will just end uh, on the note that one would also need to think the many ways in which there is an interaction between the internal and the external, because there is a lot of discourse on liberalization that was pursued by the World Bank and the IMF, the EU reports um, uh, on, on markets and mobility and so on and so forth. Uh, what is the implication of that discourse? What is the implication of the international networks? in terms of sustaining this kind of rentier structure, because I refuse to believe that Algeria's economic order would be maintained without the French, French uh, you know, control of substantial parts of the economy. And I think ultimately we would need to bring, broaden the horizon of this work and think about those alliances and networks in broader terms. And I'll finish there.